Revelation 1, 1 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The word of the Lord. If you haven't done so already, please take out this insert that says the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me pray and then we will dive in. Lord Jesus, you are the faithful witness, the one who tells the truth, the one that brings truth to us and opens our eyes by your spirit to see your, uh, the glory of God in your face as we apprehend that by faith. Uh, we are frail, Lord. We uh, struggle to communicate sometimes, struggle to hear at other times, but you are faithful. So in spite of our struggles and frailty, would you show yourself to be who you are? You're a faithful witness. Help us to see and understand now in your name. Amen. We are starting a new sermon series today that's going to carry us through the rest of the fall, winter, and into the new year on the book of Revelation. So if I were to ask you, how would you fill in this blank? The book of Revelation is the most blank book in the Scripture. What might you say? Right, we're not gonna, I'm not going to ask for feedback right now, but I'm guessing it might be something like Revelation is the most strange book, or confusing, or spooky, perhaps, or scary, abused, perhaps, ignored book, because some people don't want to talk about it at all, or most over-addressed book, sometimes that's all folk talk about. So maybe it's the most sensational book. I don't know what your answer is. Now, whatever it might be, what Taylor and I would like to contend for the next several months is that whatever it, it might be, it's also intended to be one of the most practical and helpful books to the people of God. Whatever else Rev, the book of Revelation is, it is intended by God for his people to be practical and helpful. Now, it doesn't always seem that way, I know. And part of the reason is that we're not exactly at home in the book of Revelation. We don't share the same home that the, the hearers, the original hearers of that book shared. We have, the last few days, we've had all of our kids in for an early Thanksgiving. That's how it is. They start to get married. That's how we can make sure we get them. We don't do it on the day, right? So, uh, so we get them in beforehand. And uh, uh, one of our, Sarah was, is back from Florida, and she walked into the kitchen on Friday, and she said, I was the only one in the kitchen. She said, where's mom? 
And before she could, I could answer, she said, oh, she's probably in Africa. And I go, well, now that's a weird thing. And if you were reading that interchange, if it was just a, a, a script that you were reading, years later you would say, well, what is she talking about? I knew what she meant, and she knew what she meant, and all of our other kids would have known what she meant. What did she mean, and why would they have known it, and you have no idea? Well, when, from, from early on, you know, we had a bunch of little kids together. Four kids age five and under at one point, and then the fifth kid came along a couple years later. So, like, our house was a chaotic mess all the time. And uh, not, not messy, just like chaos, right, because five little kids. And often a kid would say to me, where's mom? And I know they haven't looked for mom. They just want to know where mom is. And mom probably doesn't want them to find her. But they should, I, and so I say something knowing that she's in Africa. Or she's surfing Great Barrier Reef. She's on the space shuttle. Where's mom? She's in Cambridge writing her next best-selling novel. Like what all those things mean is actually one thing. You haven't looked for her. Go find her. And it just depends on how creative I was feeling in that time. But if I said something like she's taking a nap, it would mean don't you dare go look for her and find her. How would they know what it meant? They're in the home. It's their home. Now, somebody reading those transcripts years later might hear, you know, if read Sarah, where's mom? She's in Africa. Well, Carmen Williams is a real-world traveler, right? Or who knew she was a best-selling author? I wonder what she wrote. But if you're in the home, knowing what that kind of language is and that genre of communication you're drawing on, it makes total sense. Part of the reason Revelation can be confusing to us is that the original hearers shared a home that we're not so at home at, namely the Old Testament of the Bible. And the book of of Revelation is filled with allusions to the Old Testament. By one count, this is almost unbelievable, but there are 404 verses in the book of Revelation and over 500 allusions to the Old Testament. That's, That's one and a quarter per verse on average, right? 400 verses, over 500 allusions to the Old Testament. And if, we don't, if we're not at home in the Old Testament saying, I wonder what that meant to those original hearers from the Old Testament, we're going to say, what, would this, what does this mean to me? I wonder what this means. Maybe it means a helicopter. Maybe it means a giant locust or whatever. Like, you hear some pretty fanciful things. Why is that? Because it's not drawing from the home base. It's not drawing from the home genre of the Old Testament. So as we walk through the book of Revelation, we're going to be very intentional of drawing about drawing from the Old Testament and seeing what we see then. So on the front of your insert under the revelation of Jesus Christ. I have this paragraph. I know you can read, but I'm going to read it just to make sure we cover it. Revelation is the last book of the Bible and is often treated as, quote, mysterious and futuristic. However, we, and by we I mean Taylor and I, (laughs) we contend that it only seems mysterious because it is full of images rooted in the Old Testament and first century Roman culture from which we are now far removed. A patient and careful reading yields an understanding that is neither bizarre nor exclusively future. Rather, we find the book of Revelation to be presently encouraging and empowering for the people of God. This is because it reveals heaven's view of events that transpire on earth throughout history, including our history and the history of its original audience. That is the perspective we are taking as we are approaching this book designed by God for his people to be helpful and practical. 
It's not designed to confuse the mind, but to stir the imagination. And as we get into the book of Revelation, we will see it. The way it does that is through numerous images and symbols. Now, why use images so much? Well, as the old saying goes, an, a picture is worth a thousand words. Images are more information-dense pieces of communication. In an image, many more things are communicated, and it can be hashed out in community as things are read and heard and discussed. And so at the outset, we're saying that revelation ignites our imagination to live with Jesus in a broken world. Revelation is given to ignite our imagination so that we can live with Jesus in a broken world. In a world that's broken lots of different ways, in, a li- in lives that are broken, in all unique and different ways. And we, we're going to see in these first eight verses, this introduction to the book of Revelation. So an introduction sermon is always a temptation to try to do way too much, to try to preach the whole series at one time. We're going to resist that temptation. There's a lot of cool insights on the text as you go through that I'm going to try to leave out in the beginning, right? And we'll, we'll sprinkle them in as we go along over the next several weeks and months. The revelation is a way to get, is something given to us as a way to see our life and world right now, right now, through the lens of the gospel in light of the authority of Jesus Christ. A way of seeing our life and world right now through the lens of the gospel in light of the authority of Jesus Christ. So let's dive in. Verse 1. This is a way to see our world and life right now. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, full stop. We didn't get very far. That phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that's what the the title of the book is from. The word revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis, from which we get the English word apocalypse. The apocalypse, right? And so when we use that in English, what we typically mean is something that's way off in the future about the end of the world, the apocalypse, and the destruction of everything, right? Apocalyptic movies and so on and so forth. Great, you know, tidal waves and climate change and burning asteroids and all that kind of stuff. What it means, what the word means is unveiling. That's all it means. Hollywood makes a lot of use out of it, but it just means revealing something that previously was not revealed. It is a revelation of something. And that word, for those first hearers, meant something from somewhere. And we, so we have, when we're saying the home of Revelation is the Old Testament, it means we have to talk about the Old Testament. The word apocalypsis, which was, it would have been in the Greek Bible that these first century people used, was densely used in a passage in the book of Daniel in the second chapter of Daniel. This is the story of where the, the, the people of God of Israel are in exile. King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon has this dream, and the dream is he sees a statue. A statue with a head of gold, chest of silver, legs of bronze, and feet of iron and clay mixed together. And in this, in this uh, dream, it's a dream actually, he sees a rock that comes down the mountain, hits the feet of the statue, blows the statue up, and then the rock grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. And he doesn't know what it means. And so the prophet Daniel, the Hebrew prophet Daniel, is brought to Nebuchadnezzar to reveal, or apocalypsis, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. 
And he tells him the dream. Nebuchadnezzar hadn't told the dream anybody. He tells him the dream, and he gives him the revelation of what that means. And that word revelation there is used like seven times in those two verses. So that's the, that's the center of what that word means for the original hearers. And what Daniel says is those Nebuchadnezzar, that statue from the head to the feet are successive kingdoms from you down to the Roman Empire. And during the time the Roman Empire comes, signified by the feet of iron mixed with clay, this rock will roll into it and begin to supplant the Roman Empire and all other nations. And this nation will grow into something that fills the whole earth. And this nation, Nebuchadnezzar, is called the kingdom of God. It will come about during the reign of the Roman Empire, which is in Christ, and from then will grow to a mountain that fills the whole earth, which is the kingdom of God. That's the revelation. So the natural question to the people is like, when is this going to happen? When will this be? Well, Daniel 7 gives another prophecy. We read about it in our call to worship. I put it in your insert. It's this stunning vision, right? First you have what we take to be... The, the Father. As I looked, the thrones, this is in your insert on the right side. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So this is this picture of final truth and judgment, the unveiling the truth of all of history. It continues, and Daniel says, I saw in night, the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And remember, when Christ comes to earth, he takes on the title Son of Man. Verse 14, and to him was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel's saying, oh, this is the vision. This is the little rock that rolled into the statue and you know, exploded everything and grew into the whole earth. This is the kingdom that will have dominion and his kingdom will not be destroyed and it's the, the king is Jesus. So, all that is packed into there, that little phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. What that means is what Daniel saw is happening. That's becoming real. Now, would you have known that? Had you not known that background from Daniel 2 and 7? Probably not. Right? And this is not far off in the future. Hear the nearness of the language in this paragraph. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all he saw. So this was given to the apostle John to give to his people. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So we have is things that must soon take place. There's a blessing for those who do read it and keep it, and the time is near, which is the same language Jesus used when he said the kingdom of uh, heaven is near, repent and believe the gospel, meaning it's at hand. Some of your translations say it's at hand or right here. So we don't, we don't want to read Revelation as something that's all in the future. That may be new information to some of you. There is a promised blessing if we read it 
hear it, and keep it. What does keeping it mean? Well, at the very least, it means allowing our imaginations to be shaped by the images we find in it and aligning our life to it, which empowers a sense of hopeful endurance in God's people in faithfulness to Jesus in the midst of whatever might happen. But there's a little clue here of how to think about this. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, singular, right? There's several different visions in this, but it's treated as one book. It was meant to be sent to a church and read aloud and to the next church and read aloud. If you read the book of Revelation aloud, it will take about an hour to an hour and 15 minutes. That's how it was originally intended to be communicated. Now, we're not doing that. (laughs) But that's how it was originally intended to be communicated. And when you listen to the whole thing together, you begin to notice something. That there are these themes go all the way through Revelation. And these these cycles that you you see. And you don't notice that unless you read the whole thing at once or hear the whole thing at once. And so we're going to contend that a helpful way to think about the book of Revelation is not like something that... Well, you could say, began in the first century and ends in the future. Or some would say, as I just said, push it all off to the future. No. There's seven different visions in Revelation, most of which end with a sense of uh, return of Christ or final judgment. Why are, why are so many returns of Christ or final judgment? Most likely that's because the way to think about Revelation is several parallel, uh, parallels of all of history, from different perspectives, ending in a final judgment or a final return of Christ. So you might think of it as if you're viewing this beautiful valley, you look at the valley, you take the whole thing in, and you see it from beginning to end, and you, you, your, your mind falls on one thing that captures your imagination, your attention, you enjoy it, take it in, and then you walk a quarter of the way around the valley, and you see the same valley from a different perspective, and you take it all in, you may, your eyes may linger on something else longer, and then you keep doing that again for, for different perspectives around that valley. I think that is a good way to think about the book of Revelation. You have several different parallel visions on history and the dynamics uh, happening in history in light of the gospel and God's people just from different perspectives. And so we're going to take you through those perspectives, all capturing the dynamics of what was going on then and the dynamics of what's going on now. And we're going to do this through the lens of the gospel. Verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, this is a letter to seven churches. Like there was a letter to the church in Galatia, Colossians, uh, in Corinth. This is a letter to seven churches, not just one. Now, why seven churches? We know there were seven churches, but we also know there were a lot more churches by that time. This is, by the way, the, the mail route that letter would have gone around Asia Minor. That's the, the, the order the churches appear in later. Taylor's going to preach that. Uh, are the, the order it would have gone on the mail route. But there were a lot of churches in between there. Why did it just say seven churches? Well, if you go back in the Old Testament and say, what does the number seven signify? We don't have to look too far. It signifies completion, namely in creation, <laughs> and then the giving of the law, right? Um, there is, uh, so seven is this number of completion, and you might say perfection, but a wholeness in the Old Testament. And so most scholars of all stripes, I think, I think I can say this, almost every scholar would say those seven churches represent seven real historical churches. 
but also they are emblematic of the church in all time. And when we look at those churches, we see they're struggling with different types of distress, right? It might be persecution. It might be poverty. It might be uh, uh, false teaching. It might be sexual immorality. It might be the real soul-killing, dangerous distress of wealth and ease, Church of Laodicea. All these churches have different types of distress and have different levels of faithfulness or lack of faithfulness. And most scholars would say that is emblematic of the church in all time. So New City Church, we would read Revelation 2 and 3 and say, how does this read us, for instance? Continues. Grace to you and peace. That's the intention of this book. It's the intent. Not confusion to you and terror, but grace to you and peace. Not... Well, it doesn't matter for you because it's all in the future, but grace to you and peace. That's what the intention of this book is. From him who is and who was and who is to come. There's this nice Trinitarian thing going to unfold here, the Father, Spirit, and Son. From him who is and who was and who is to come. This is calling to mind Exodus 3. If you remember that from last year sometime in our Old Testament study, God's going to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt through Moses, and Moses is like... God appears to him in the burning bush. Moses is like, I kind of believe you, but what if the people don't believe me? Who do I tell them sent me? What is your name? And God says, tell them, I am sent you. I am, which normally is translated Yahweh when we say it in English. I am, which roughly meant the one who was and is and is to come. (laughs) The self-existent one. So that's what this is getting at, the name of God. The one who is before all things and is after all things and inhabits all things. But the order here is not what we would expect. If you notice, the present is first. It says the one who is and who was and who is to come. We normally would think of that, even in the Hebrew thought, of who was and who is and who is to come. As if to say, well, I'm going to foreground this reality. I am for you. I I am the one who is. So whatever your situation is, I want you to know this, people. If you're reading this prophecy, if you trust in in my son Jesus, I am present for you. I'm foregrounding my personalness as the I am for you. Yeah, you may not see the end from the beginning. That's okay, I do. I am the one who was and who is to come. I see the end from the beginning. I hold the end from the beginning. You may not know that or see it, but here's what I want you to know. I am the one who is for you. So the invitation to see the personalness, personalness of God in this massive vision. How is it possible that he is the one who is with us? Continues. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And yet at this point, everybody's like, okay, I'm out. What, seven spirits? What is this? Where would we ever find out the meaning of the seven spirits, anybody? So far? Old Testament, yay! No, let's just make it up. Let's call it seven armies. Okay, no, that would be bad, bad exegesis. Let's look in the Old Testament. Let's say, I don't know, Zechariah 4 where Zechariah receives a vision of these seven lamps that are, that, are, that are burning with fire, and the angel says, do you know what those are? And Zechariah's like, no. And he says, this is the Spirit, okay? This is the Spirit by which the Lord accomplishes his will. The Spirit. And remember, seven is a picture of completion. So this is my whole, complete, perfect Spirit who ministers grace to his people and accomplishes his will in the earth. He brings this perfect grace 
to us by ministering the presence of Jesus Christ, who is, in verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, or the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the faithful witness. He speaks the truth to his people. He is the firstborn from the dead. This is speaking of the resurrection. You know, we, we, think, we think about two resurrections in the Scripture. Jesus' resurrection, and at the end of what we call history, or this chapter, our resurrection. The Bible doesn't actually talk about it that way. It talks about the resurrection. There was one who goes first, and those who go second. The firstborn from the dead is Jesus. Who is the secondborn from the dead? Well, if you're in Christ, the secondborn from the dead is in your chair. That's what that means. Firstborn of the dead, the same resurrection. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, and we follow after him in the same resurrection. And even in Ephesians 2, we are spiritually united to him now in his resurrection. So that in order for us not to be the second born from the dead, he would have to come back to earth, be crucified all over again, and remain in the grave. That's how certain it is that those in Christ are the second born from the dead. He's the first born from the dead. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. I love this phrase, but it does alert us to the fact that Jesus really does create a problem for his people. Jesus is always creating a problem for his people. What do I mean by that? Well, I say it a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but when we serve Jesus, it means we are always serving a higher power than that which around thinks is the highest power. There are high, powers around us to say, I am the authority, I am the power. You know, as Americans, I guess the federal government would say that. We say, actually, no. You're a power, you're an authority, but we serve one who is ruler of the kings of the earth. One who is ruler of all authorities and power. So that means our basic posture as a Christian, and you're going to say it different, you're going to have a different orientation toward it, a different attitude toward it, but it's something like this, that we say to the powers and authorities or whatever it considers itself an authority in our life any, anywhere, whether that's a government or an employer, or a parent. I will happily serve you. I will go along until you call me to live in a way, believe something, or say something that denies my king or what he has said. Then it's not going to happen. Now, you may say it differently than I would say it like that, but that is the posture that we adopt. Why? Because the one we serve is the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's why. They may not know it yet. They may deny it right now. But it cannot be denied forever. In fact, it cannot even be denied by the end of this passage. In the first century context where this was given, Domitian was the emperor, probably. He required people to dress him as Lord and God. Christians of that age would say, we respect you as emperor, but we cannot do that. It did not always go well for them when they said that. He's a ruler of the kings of the earth. He's the ruler of public opinion. He's the ruler of popular opinion. He's a ruler of economic systems. 
So all these things, like a lot of these opinions that float around our world and our peer groups or whatever, we may say, okay, fine, I can go with you, whatever, until you ask me to believe something or declare something or live in a way that denies my king, and then absolutely not. Why? He's the ruler of the kings of the earth, that's why. And he's certainly the ruler of you. What creates this kind of courage in the people of God? Well, let's look at what this one did. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay, just this is a nerd alert. Here we go. The verb tenses here are wonderfully important. Okay? Let's look at them. He loves us. That's a present tense verb, active reality, ongoing reality. It's not just that he did love us at the cross. That's true. Not that he will love us in the future. That's true. What he says right now is, I love my people. He loves us actively. Whatever's going down in your life, start here. You are loved by the King of kings and Lord of lords. It may be very difficult. You may not be able to see the end from the beginning. That's all right. He is the one who is, and he loves us. We're going to go to the communion table in a few minutes. We do this weekly because we seek to communicate that that's what's represented, this ongoing, active, self-giving love of Jesus to his people. And we want the communion table and the taste of that bread and wine to be the lens through which we see our life and experience our life. Why? Partly because of this. He says, I'm the one who loves my people. That's his, so, present disposition of the Lord to you if you're in Christ. He loves you actively. Sometimes we just have to submit to that and enjoy it. Not because we've earned it, not because we can keep it, but because he's a lover of his people. And here's what he did. He has freed us from our sins. Now that is a past action, past completed action. In Christ, we have been freed from our sins. What does that mean? At the cross, when Jesus declares it is finished and breathes his last, we, in Christ, were freed from the penalty of our sin. That means, look, you can, if you're a Christian, you can fear and be concerned about the judgment of God on you, but it's a false fear <laughs> because there's none left. It's been taken by Jesus. That's in part what it means when he says, I freed you from your sins. It means that we've been freed from the ultimate penalty of our sins, which is enduring death. Enduring death. Hebrews 2, I read this a couple weeks ago, but let me just reread it. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children, that's a share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook, partook of the same things that became human, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What it means to be freed from our sins is that there is, is, that there is no ultimate death for God's people. Now, I'm not saying we can't be concerned about death. I'm not saying we can't be afraid of it. I'm, what I am saying is there's nothing on the other side for the people of God 
but glory. That's it. Now, if we run that back into our life and think, what would, what would really happen in my life? How would that cascade into my life if I knew that I was free from death? You are. You're the second born from the dead. He loves us. He has freed us. He has made us a kingdom of priests, or a kingdom and priests, but really it's kingdom of priests. That's a past tense reality. He brought us into a family and made us a kingdom of priests. That is a calling that he has given to his people to be his representatives in the world. Again, this is drawing on the Old Testament concept of the priesthood. Who The priests were a special group, a special class of people who had a unique access to God and then represented God to the world. In Christ, if you're in Christ, we're, we're all brought up and placed in that class. So we, because we have the perfect spirit who ministers God's grace to us, have a unique access to God, and then we are his representatives. So what it means to be a kingdom of priests is simply this. We live with a king. That's what it means to have a kingdom. We are subjects of a kingdom, so we have a king. We live unreservedly for our king, who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And then we get to be his representatives in the world after we have special access to him. So we live faithfully to this king and then represent him in word and deed in love and in witness, in faithfulness and integrity. That's how we function as priests in this world. Now, I think that's a pretty good news for us. We live in a world that often communicates, you know, you need to figure out your calling in life. I have this conversation with people all the time. So if you had this conversation with me, you know what I'm about to say. Uh, And calling in life in our world is wrapped up in, like, what kind of job do you have? What kind of status do you have? What kind of marital status do you have? How many children do you have? What kind of children do you have? All this kind of stuff. Okay. None of that is our calling. I can tell you what God's will for your life is. Ready? That you be a kingdom of priests. That wherever you're living out your life, we live under the authority of our king, and represent him to those around us. We can do that, whatever the vocation, however much our pay is or is not, however many dirty diapers we have to change or do not, however many employers we have to uh, hire or fire or bosses we have to please, or if we're a student or not a student, if we're old or if we're young, if we're broken down or built up, whatever our situation in life, because we're in Christ, we are a kingdom of priests. That means none of the days of our life need be wasted. We're never on the shelf because we're always around somebody or someone to whom we can be representatives of the king. That's our calling in life. It's, such good, it's, it's good news. That's what it means to be kingdom of priests. And this is a communal reality. This is given to the people. Like we, we need to receive this revelation together, hold on to it together, and remind each other. Because the world keeps sending us the other way. So, in this world, it might be hard to do this, and you may face difficulty, undoubtedly we will. But we don't give up or give in because this king has final authority. And that's the last piece of what we're going to see here. Verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, 
Amen. So this is referring to the coming of Christ. What does this mean? Okay, this is going to be probably the most outlying thing I say based on probably a lot of your background, okay? When we, see, when we hear about Jesus coming with the clouds, here's what we have in our mind's eye, most of us. Jesus dropping down out of the sky like on a hot air balloon, or depending how fast you think he returns, like in a missile or something, right? Coming down, coming through the clouds. Or like maybe riding a Harley on the clouds. I don't know, like you've seen interesting pictures, right? Jesus riding on the clouds. Um, and this return of Christ coming through the clouds and every eye will see him. And so for years, skeptics are like, well, how is that going to happen? How is, every, how is somebody on, on the other side of the world going to see Jesus come with the clouds, right? The uh, optical angle it won't work. What if it's not sunny out? What if it's not a place with clouds? And then all of a sudden we have television cameras and people are like, aha, it'll be televised. And people all over the world have television cameras. And now they can see it. Now connective technology, that's how every eye will see him come with the clouds. Okay, can we just back up and say, what did clouds mean in the Old Testament? The power and glory of God. How do we know that? Well, when he led them out of slavery, he led them in a pillar of cloud. When he gave the Ten Commandments, Sinai, this powerful cloud came down. The cloud came over the, the, uh, the Shekinah glory cloud, came over the, the tabernacle. At the transfiguration, when Jesus was transfigured and revealed kind of who he was, a cloud covered them. In Acts 1, when Jesus ascends into heaven, it's like he walks up some stairs and a cloud envelops him. It doesn't say he's coming through the clouds or riding on the clouds. He's bringing the clouds with him. That's what it means to be coming with the clouds. He's coming in glory and power and judgment. That's all this is communicating. What does it mean that every eye will see him? It means that every eye will see him. Everyone has to deal with this one who comes in authority, bringing the clouds and power of heaven with him. Everybody has to deal with this one. Even the rulers of the kings of the earth who thought they were above all are not. They have to deal with this one. This is the one we get to call Father. This is the one we get to call Savior. This is the one we get to call Comforter Spirit with us. Verse 8, I am the Alpha... And the Omega says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha and Omega are the, the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. Jesus is here saying everything begins and ends with me. And I have chosen to reveal it to you in this apocalypse, this revelation. And then he repeats here, I'm the one who is, first, personal, and then who was, and who is to come. And in a, as a means of communicating that avail- availability, we come to the communion table. If you are the one who looks to him in faith, the table is open to you. It communicates to us the one who was, who freed us from our sins at the cross. The one who is to come. The one with whom we get to share fellowship in a renewed, resurrected earth for all of history. And the one who is standing in heaven now to give his mercy, love, and grace to his people. If you are in Christ, this table is open to you.